Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here and to connect with many old friends and new. And especially to see this institute take off here, working on such important things. What I'm going to be talking about is, as Colin uh, mentioned, linked to more of the policy, but especially the institutional side of this. And I was uh, frantically uh, making notes, Roberto's comments and Malin's also this morning uh, relate to this quite a bit. Um, so the first thing I'm going to be talking about is why we need institutions. They sound really um, obscure. Why do we need to be worrying about that? Don't we just need more policies and investments to, to address all these water problems? Well, a framework that we have developed with this program on collective action and property rights to explain this, um, we start to look at what we have found, and I've been working on water resource management for about 30 years now, um, is that technologies alone do not solve the problems. Government policies alone do not solve the problems. What we really have to get is uh, working together. So just to understand why we need this, if we think about um, the technologies or water management practices on uh, the time scale from short term within say within a season to uh, long term over years generations and the spatial scale from a plot to a farm to sort of a group to a community up to the nation and some of these models we are uh, conceptual models we even go to the global level um, well, you can think about planting an annual crop down here in the corner. It's, um, you get the returns within a season. You can do it on a single plot. A uh, farmer can do it by herself and doesn't need to worry. Even a tenant farmer can do it. But as you get longer time horizons, say drip irrigation or planting trees, then if you don't have tenure security, if you don't have property rights, you probably don't have the incentive to make that long-term investment. And even if you had the incentive, you may not have the authority to do so. Um, a renter often cannot plant a tree. Now, uh, then if we go up the spatial scale, sharing of information or integrated pest management, as another example I use. You get the returns right away within a season, but you can't do it by yourself. Now, when we look at most water management um, practices or technologies, especially, well, the first thing you note is that for things that have a larger spatial scale, you uh, actually need some form of coordination, some form of working together. Um, now, as we start to look at this, especially in developing countries where farm sizes are quite small, a well might serve multiple farmers. So again, you need some co coordination. Um, I know uh, 
check dams, again, uh, Malin mentioned those this morning. Those usually serve multiple farmers. You need some kind of coordination to get that investment or that Roberto talked about from Sukumadri this morning. Um, then terracing, again, for managing the green water, usually requires coordinating at kind of a landscape level, and there's a long time horizon. So do, the, do people have the property rights to give them the tenure security to make that investment? Uh, watershed management is often at an even larger scale. You need even more coordination. Um, canal irrigation systems can often, well, in Pakistan, be at very large scales. Um, reservoirs, again, very large and long time horizons. And then transboundary river basins way up at the top. Uh, aquifers can any of these technologies, I should say, where they are on this graph is kind of illustrative. It'll be depending on your farm sizes and your, uh, what the turnaround time on investment is. So for example, in Nebraska, a center pivot irrigation system might be only part of a farm. In Zimbabwe, where I worked, uh, when I was first working there, many of the farms, again, had center pivot irrigation systems. After the land reform, which broke up these large farms, now suddenly you had multiple small farmers all sharing a center pivot system. You needed some form of coordination among the farmers to make that work. Now, all of these uh, um, that I've got circled that are above the level of the farm are examples of some form of commons. And water really is a very important commons. It connects people, uh, and that needs to be taken into account. Um, I'm, in the rest of this talk, I'm going to be drawing a lot on the work of Eleanor Ostrom and other scholars of the commons who found that despite what you've heard about the inevitable tragedy of the commons, in fact, you do find successful commons that have existed over centuries and even millennia. And some of the best examples of those are irrigation systems that have been operating for a thousand years in Sri Lanka, for example. But we also know that that commons, that coordination, doesn't happen automatically, and Colin uh, mentioned how many of the uh, irrigation management transfer systems had failed because of, for one reason or another. So what we find is that in general for this kind of coordination, the state, the government, has an advantage at higher levels. Um, but when it comes down to lower levels, there's, the government isn't usually very effective, and there it's important to have more collective action among people directly. The other important thing, as I think we're going to hear a lot from the natural resource districts here in Nebraska and others, is the interaction between the state and collective action. That's also really important. And that's at the crux, perhaps, of many of the failures of the irrigation management transfer uh, schemes as well. 
that lack of court, that the collective action that was expected at the ground level for managing things didn't take, didn't happen, and that there wasn't the proper coordination with the state. So, let me go into a little bit more about understanding collective action then. We're not just talking about formal group membership. I've, uh, I've gone to irrigation agencies where they've tried to uh, do water user associations and they said, we did this on a war footing. We registered a thousand water user associations. Great, can I go talk to some? Well, actually, no, because what we really did was we went and got people to sign up on a piece of paper, but they didn't actually start working together. So I want to go through a little bit more about what do we really mean about collective action. The important thing is the action that's taken by a group, and that can be by, by the members themselves or by hiring somebody uh, but in pursuit of that group's shared interests. And that can include forming and enforcing rules for, for example, the use of water. And some element that it's um, semi-voluntary, at least, not just the paid cor or corvée labor. Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in economics a few years ago, um, has developed eight broad design principles that, for, um, that long enduring commons share. And this comes a lot from her work on water. These, these design principles have been tested on a lot of cases and I'm gonna actually use a refined version of that that came out last year. But the first is that there are clearly defined boundaries. And that is, oh, the other thing I want to say is that these are design principles. Ostrom herself is the first to say these are not hard and fast rules, nor are they a panacea. Sometimes they've been interpreted as rigid, hard and fast, must have. But in general, we find it's, you're more likely to get the collective action if these things take place. So the first is that there are fairly clearly defined boundaries. And when it comes to water management, that you're, you've got, you know who the users are, as well as the resource boundaries. You know what area is supposed to be irrigated, for example. The second principle is congruence, that there's basically the, the uh, rules system fits both the local conditions and there is congruence between the appropriation and provision, sorry, uh, typo there. Um, that means that the, what you have to contribute is roughly con congruent to the benefits you're going to get out of the system. Again, in a number of cases in irrigation systems, the rules are requiring uh, farmers to contribute a lot more than the economic benefits that they might be getting, and that's often a problem. The third design principle is that there are collective choice arrangements. That means that not all the rules are set by outsiders and, enforce, and forced upon people, but that they have some way of setting of 
creating rules, and that there are, in a sense, rules for creating rules. Who can participate in setting those rules? Um, that there is some flexibility. That actually relates back to that congruence with local conditions, because local people are more likely to be able to adapt the rules to their local conditions. Uh, this, then another set of design principles relates to monitoring, and lots and lots of testing has, has validated the importance of this. The first set of monitoring is that, you, that there is some mechanism for monitoring the users. So that if you have rules for managing your irrigation or your watershed, that somebody watches whether the users actually abide by those rules. The reason this is really important is that when there is some monitoring, then that helps build trust as long as I know that somebody is patrolling the canals, I will trust that if I abide by the rules, other people are as well. Um, whereas if there is no monitoring, then, well, maybe I can just take a little bit more water than the rules say because I can get away with it or because I think other people are too. Uh, the second part and if we have time, I want to come back to why groundwater management is much harder than surface water management because it's much harder to monitor uh, groundwater than, than surface water in many contexts, especially in developing countries. The next part is monitoring of the resource. There needs to be somebody that people trust who is gauging the level of the resource that's available and to see are we getting as much water this year? Are we, do we need to adapt our cropping patterns, for example? Um, and I think we'll get some examples tomorrow of some wonderful um, involvement of, of rural women in monitoring the resource. Um, Graduated sanctions is another really important um, principle, design principle for these uh, commons organizations. And that is that if you break the rules, there will be some sanctioning. But generally, if you come in with just one level of punishment for every infraction, then that's also a problem because if, say, you have a great, you say, if you take too much water, you're immediately cut off, then maybe people don't want to enforce that because that's enforcing it often on their neighbors. And if it's too, seen as too draconian a measure for the first infraction, they won't want to enforce it. At the same time, if you set the sanction too low, people won't care. Eh, I'm fined $5. You know, that's not that much. Maybe I can afford it. Um, so graduated sanctions, in many places, an effective set of graduated sanctions, the first time, nothing is even said. It's just a note is left to tell the person, we know you broke the rules. The second time, there's a direct 
telling the person. The third time it might be um, written or, <clears throat> or with a group or, or the, the person who's doing the infraction is hauled in front of the committee and is either shamed or fined a little bit. And then if they keep breaking the rules, then they're cut off or more uh, severe punishments. What that does is that it makes people more likely to uh, enforce the rules. Conflict resolution mechanisms. Again, if they aren't there, then people who feel aggrieved may start breaking the rules even more. Or if there are conflicts between two groups of users, again, that can, can lead to breakdown of the whole system. Uh, the seventh principle is uh, minimal recognition of the rights to organize. That is, do the users as a group even have the right to come together to um, set their rules? In some societies, there are real prohibitions against this, and that will undermine the likelihood of collective action in ma managing the resource. Finally, the eighth principle is not a hard and fast one, but that it's called nested enterprises. So rather than if you have a, a large irrigation canal, for example, that serves thousands of users, you don't have one um, user group for that whole thing. You might have at the watercourse level in Pakistan, for example, you, you would have one group. Then they get together at the tertiary canal level and they have kind of a, a representation up to that level. And then uh, there might be um, levels up to the whole, whole irrigation canal system. But these are nested. And then there is uh, interaction with different government agents at each level as well. What Ostrom refers to as polycentric governance. So it's not just one um, organization, but multiple that each have their defined roles. So uh, these principles have been found in places that have effective commons management, of, especially of water, but they are not automatic. They, aren't, they are not found everywhere. What happened historically, and I'm glad Colin referred to the history of Emi's work, was when I was trained in, uh, on irrigation sociology, uh, the, big, the big person you talked about was Wittfogel, who talked about the uh, hydraulic societies and that the necessity of the state to manage water. And what we that's what I was trained on. And yet many of my colleagues who were going out to the field, and when I went out for my master's work, we found that in fact the state was not doing everything, that in many places there were these farmer-managed irrigation systems. And Ostrom's work and others showed that in fact many of these farmer-managed systems performed better than, than the ones that were managed by government. So then there was this 
big move toward saying, well, then we should transfer the management of these canal systems that are not performing very well to water user associations. We'll tell the farmers to organize. And then that'll, um, that'll, take, that'll improve their management. Um, there, what happened was by the time governments were willing to transfer the management, in many of the cases, these, these canal systems were so dilapidated and were, uh, irrigation was no longer a very well-paying proposition, so governments wanted to get out of the business of subsidizing. But, surprise, surprise, where you might have a very well-managed farmer uh, managed irrigation system, when you tried to transfer a decrepit government-managed system to the farmers, you didn't have that same level of collective action. So then it was, well, this was a bad idea. Well, the first question is, were the payoffs and incentives enough? Um, then if, they, if there were, in fact, good enough incentives, and that's debatable in a number of cases, um, then if there were good enough incentives, then were there major structural obstacles? And there's a whole list of factors that are likely to affect collective action. For example, in India, if you have a canal system that serves two different villages where they're not used to working together, maybe it's, you know, it's more difficult to get the collective action. And then finally, if, there, if in this diagnosis you say, well, there is potential, then there are a number of things that have been done to strengthen collective action. There have been a number of programs that hire facilitators that go into communities and talk to them, participatory planning methods, competitions, things that are done to stimulate collective action. There are also a number of policy and institutional reforms a big one is actually getting the government agencies to work collaboratively with the farmer groups. And that's been a major obstacle in many cases, um, getting those incentives for them to work together. And empowering the groups to manage the resource, which means allowing them to make some of their own rules, which sometimes governments are nervous about doing. Um, that empowering them to manage the resource leads to the uh, other set of things that I wanted to talk about, um, and that is property rights. And the rights both to the water and to the infrastructure, especially on, on irrigation systems. Um, that's what I'm talking about generally when I talk about infrastructure here. So the um, in a lot of these systems of transferring um, irrigation management transfer, there's been a transfer. The government says, okay, now you user groups, it's your responsibility to manage the, the irrigation infrastructure up to a level, certain level. But often they do not transfer the rights along with the responsibilities. That's been a major problem in many of the cases. And again, do they, do they consider whether there are enough incentives for people to come together and manage the resources and the authority, for example, to set and enforce the rules? When I'm talking about the rights, 
and we talk about water rights, a lot of people think that water rights are like a title to land. And then they say, well, there are no water rights, there are use rights. When I'm talking about property rights, it's more than just things like a title. Um, definitions like uh, the capacity to call on the collective to stand behind your claim, or claims that are recognized as legitimate. And those claims may be based on state law, but they may be based on other types of law. So you have to have some, something that backs up your claim. And your claim is only as strong as the institution that backs it up. Um, I'm going to come back to that point in just a second. But it's also not just about ownership in the way that we often think about ownership of land in the United States or in the West, Western world where we often think about you know, the rights to do anything with that piece of property, which actually doesn't hold even for land. But we talk about bundles of rights. Um, so the first bundle is just the access to the resource. Can I step into this canal? Can I, you know, uh, can my kids uh, play in the water? Can I, then the second is the withdrawal right. Can I take a, um, a bucket of water out? Do I have the right to uh, exploit the resource in some way? Um, those are use rights. Then you get into control or decision-making rights, the management. Can I change the way the water flows in some way by you know, adding a canal, by closing a gate, by doing something like that? Then the exclusion right. Can I keep other people from using the water? And finally, the alienation right. Can I give up my right? Can I transfer my right? Can I sell it to somebody else? Those are the control and decision-making rights. And there's a hierarchy here. But all of those can be important when it comes to water. Um, and they will give different kinds of incentives. You need to look at how these are, are shared because with water, we rarely find that one has one person or group has all of the rights. Um, so we, we need to look at that. But all of these really play an important role in providing the incentives for that all of those kinds of management um, that I highlighted in the beginning. As I said, there are many different sources of rights. When I got started in this business, I stayed away from analyses of water rights because I worked in places like India and what the government said the water rights were didn't bear a whole lot of resemblance to what I saw on the ground. When I discovered the, the, the whole set of studies of legal pluralism that says, yes, rights can come from many different sources. There is government law or state law uh, there may be project regulations. When the World Bank comes in with a project or when the government comes in with an irrigation project, those create certain rights as well. Then there's customary law. And on, on water especially, you have a lot of very important customary law. 
For example, in, and it may not be written down or explicit, but in Kenya there is a proverb that says even the jackal has a right to water. And the jackal is a particularly not well-liked animal. But what that implies is that you, can't, you should not be stopping somebody from crossing your land to get water, especially for drinking. This is embodied in customary law. And if you then go through and do a, some kind of a um, development project that ignores that, people may either resent it or, or uh, ignore your rules. Then there, are there is religious law on water. I work a lot in India, as I said, and there's both Hindu and Islamic law that's quite relevant to what you can and can't do with water. And then just sort of local norms. All of these do interact with each other. And what's important is looking at how people uh, may appeal to one or another of these sources of, of rights and how th this creates not just a static view of water rights or of rights to infrastructure, but a very dynamic view. And that's the way we need to understand this all. Um, I, uh, a lot of this material we've distilled down into a source book on um, rights resources, rights, and cooperation. And there's, um, it's available on our website, but we also have then a lot more of the uh, resource materials to go deeper into any of this. So what I would like to do is uh, stop here uh, and have some time for questions and discussion, because I think we have a lot of rich experience here between sort of U.S., Nebraska, South Africa, India, a lot of different interpretations, different ways this can go. And uh, rather than me try to summarize this all, I want to allow a little bit of time, I hope, to um, uh, hear from you and discuss this. So thank you. Are there any comments or questions for Ruth? We'd encourage you to go to the mics on the floor. I think Ken Kassman has one. I think Mark over here has one. Okay, yes. <laughs> okay, it's on now, I guess. Thank you. Um, I was wondering if uh, in your studying and research on this, if you have experience uh, mediating or, oh, I'm sorry, I'm Mark Gustafson, uh, uh, in, in mediating some, some uh, or developing some commons uh, arrangements uh, over some water, and if so, if you have some examples where it was successful and where it wasn't. Mm -hmm. One interesting example, at a very small scale, was um, in Kenya, 
Uh, I was working with the World Agroforestry Center that uh, was working on spring protection. In the Nyando Basin, a lot of communities don't have um, safe sources of drinking water, and yet there are hundreds of, of springs all around. But in order to make those springs into safe drinking water, there's a certain amount of work that needs to be done in terms of protecting them, um, planting certain kinds of trees around them, and then putting in base a simple uh, pipe. There's a bit, bit of cost of that. It has to be negotiated with the owners of the land, who will then have to allow people to cross that, and getting an investment in that. Um, and it hasn't been successful everywhere, but it's really been encouraging where it has been successful, especially the one case I can think of. Um, women get the biggest benefit from that uh, because they don't have, they have water for less time to gather water for their homes and um, livestock really benefit. Um, but the men actually had to put up the, the money and it was really interesting also just even within households, getting people's interests to line up and to, for the men to realize that it was worth putting up the money and the landowner around the spring to say, yes, I will give, the, give up these couple of acres in, for my community. Um, so that's a positive case. I think there's a lot of other cases about conflict over water. You hear a lot of hype about water wars but in fact, I think the more serious stuff is not the international water wars, but the conflicts that happen at a very local level, um, often leading even to killings over water. Yeah, Ken. So, um, Ruth, my question is to you and, and, and to Colin Chartres, if he would like to chime in. But in, in my experience, and I'm sure yours and Colin's, so many of the world's major irrigation systems in developing countries are not being optimized for a number of reasons. Um, the endogangetic um, uh, system in, in Pakistan, um, many of the river systems in, in East Asia, and, and what it means is water is not going to, to its best use, particularly in terms of food production. And yet when we looked at the scenario analyses that Colin showed us earlier, the optimistic scenarios, the one that has to come about because the others are impossible with the amount of water, business as usual, and, and the pessimistic scenario, they imply that there's going to be better use of water in these major irrigation systems, I think. So my question to both of you, are there examples where a poorly managed major irrigation system in developing countries has been brought into a situation of much better, more efficient, more rational water use? And, and, so, and so thus, is there a model for how that might, might occur? Or are we still, when we model the future, using hypotheticals about whether, you know, we, we know there, it can be improved, but there's no case study that tells us that it has been. 
Colin, do you want to answer? The one that comes to mind that um, Mexico had in the early 90s had, I forget how many um, thousands of hectares of irrigated land that was just totally out of production because of poor management. And um, a lot of the impetus for this irrigation management transfer did come from a very ambitious program of transferring the management to uh, water user associations, of really getting farmers involved in this. Um, unfortunately, when you get, there's a real hunger for success stories that are simple. And whether those success stories are for treadle pumps or irrigation management transfer, everybody wants to glom on to just a magic bullet, a panacea on it. And then, or, or even water markets, you know. I've, I've lived through a lot of these different panaceas. And when you transfer that model to another place, or it might not be sustained over time. So there's not just a simple solution. You, you have to have kind of a continuous process. Um, Colin, do you have other? Yeah, Ken, uh, just a couple of very quick ones. One that I can think of is in the Murrumbidgee irrigation system in Australia, which was going downhill rapidly. It was a consequence of uh, land being subdivided too small uh, when, when it was allocated to what were called soldier settlers, uh, people who'd come back from the First World War, combination of salinization and uh, issues like that. But through a, a program of land reform and ma better management of salinity and drainage, uh, that, that system has been rejuvenated and is uh, highly, highly profitable. In the developing world, the, the one I can think of is uh, what happened in Gujarat. And this is something that Tushar Shah worked on in IMI, and this was called um, the Jyotigram scheme. In fact, this was a, an area where tube well pumping had been encouraged by uh, power subsidies and farmers were just pumping literally 24 hours a day. Water was being wasted and groundwater tables were de declining very, very rapidly. The whole thing was going to implode and there were lots of blackouts in terms of power supply. What uh, Tushar recommended was in this case they um, rationed or they separated the feeder lines which went to the pumps from those going to the villages and he persuaded the Chief Minister of Gujarat to do that and it cost about $400 million in the areas that uh, they firstly took on. But when they'd done that, they were able to turn the power off to the pumps and they turned it off for about 16 hours a day and farmers just couldn't pump. And it, they all said it'd be a disaster, it wasn't. Farmers got enough water by pumping for the eight hours, the water tables stabilised, the state one uh, re recovered masses of amounts of money in terms of its electricity subsidy, not to mention the carbon uh, released. And there was an ancillary benefit of uh, power supply to the villages being much more constant with less, uh, less blackouts. So I, I think there are examples. I think some of the um, e examples in, the other part, in other countries would also come to mind to others, but they're few and far between. 
I think there was a hand in the. Oh, Patrick. Okay. Yeah. I I wanted to ask a question, but you go ahead first, please. Okay, I'm going to take it. This is Lilian Fulginiti from UNL. Um, take you back to principles, and you uh, talked about uh, management by the state and collectives. Uh, you barely mentioned now water markets. Um, what are the differences, if you, you know, fast uh, about between collective action and water markets, and are there any general principles when one would work better than the other? Ah, I'm glad you asked that. Um, I've, I have done work on water markets in Pakistan, groundwater markets, and actually the, when I drew out this coordination, coordination can be done by the, the state, by the government, by collective action, or by markets. Um, and to give you an example, in Pakistan a lot of these larger tube wells will serve multiple households. The, um, in the 70s and 80s, there were uh, government-run tube wells. And first of all, these were a little bit too large, but they had a government um, tube well operator, and they were broadly known as a, a disaster. They didn't pay for themselves, and the farmers did not get very good service. Um, then, as Colin mentioned, smaller sizes of pumps came in um, were more affordable. A lot of farmers invested in them. Um, I studied both, there were two ways that that could happen. One well would still serve more than just one farm. There were two ways that it could happen. One farmer could invest and then sell the extra water and or the other was that a group of farmers could get together and buy a, and operate a well together. Um, the first thing about water markets is that to transfer water from one, one to another, you have to have a physical infrastructure that will let you do that. So it does, a lot of places where mar water markets are advocated in developing countries, you're talking about open um, ditch canals, you just don't have the flexibility to do this. You could, with these uh, tube wells in Pakistan, because they were sort of localized and, and they put in the infrastructure to be able to transfer it. What I found actually was that the water markets served, uh, I mean they did increase water availability to small farmers. The disadvantage was that smaller and younger farmers and lower status farmers were more likely to be cut off from water when it became scarce. Um, and the richer and more senior farmers even had the right to buy when it became more scarce. Whereas the um, collective tube wells, smaller farmers were more likely to be able to get it. The problem is that there's more transaction costs, more hassle of having to rotate um, the, you know, your turns and did you, when you operated the pump, did you really bring the, uh, the oil that you were supposed to bring and did you operate it correctly? Because when the pump broke down under my turn, you may not have operated it correctly. So, I mean, I think there's these transaction costs that happen with the collective action that the market may not have. So I want to do more on this, but right now my hunch is that when a lot of 
technology and mechanical technology is involved, then uh, the water markets are more likely to uh, be a, a coordination mechanism. Um, my name is Patrick McNamara, and my question was about, you, you mentioned participatory games. I wonder if you could talk just a little oh. bit more about that and the benefit for community organizing in terms of those participatory games. Okay, here you have me on, uh, out on a little bit of a limb. It's a project that I'm very much hoping we can get started, but we've been, um, collaborating for quite some time with um, uh, at Arizona State University and with collaborators in Columbia, people who uh, develop games for testing collective action. And these they've worked with Ostrom and others, Marco Janssen, Juan Camilo Cardenas, Marky, Mar Marty Andres, where they, they use these um, experimental games of going to the field and giving people a certain amount of money saying, okay, you each get $5, you can, in a group, you can either keep it yourself or you can put however much you want into the pool. Whatever you put in the pool will be doubled and shared out among you. And the, the, it's a way of testing the likelihood of collective action, but in debriefing after some of these games, um, Cardenas has noted that actually after that, there's an increase in collective action. So what we're hoping to do with a, a large, both in Colombia and with a large NGO in India that is trying to get farmers to manage the groundwater table more effectively is to try and develop some of these games that we can use not just to estimate the likelihood of collective action, but also as a way of stimulating uh, community exercises to get them to realize how there would be gains for collective action. Uh, so the best I can say on that, and this is why there was a question mark after that point on the on the slide, um, the best I can say right now is stay tuned. Thank you.